Great to see everybody again. Welcome those of you that are with us this morning over at the Spanish Trail campus. Don't y'all here at Nine Mile love the Spanish trailers this morning? Put your hands together. Let's welcome them into the worship of God this morning. Love y'all so much and uh, so glad to be able to welcome you here with us this morning. Our Bibles are open to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we're starting uh, a a new series, uh, so to speak, within a series as we turn the page into the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Colossians. I'm telling you, I just love the richness, the depth, and the power of Paul's letter to the Colossians. I'm fired up about it, and I hope it shows. Today, we're going to talk for a few minutes about goals. Are there any goal setters in the house today? Anybody set goals? Usually, that's kind of a January thing. We'll set goals for how many books we're going to read in a calendar year. Do you all know uh, in the United States, four out of ten Americans don't read a book in a year? Uh, not an entire book. I hope you read the Bible. Somebody say amen. Make the, if you're going to read one, just read that one, and you'll be in good shape. But we set goals about our personal life, and many of you are managers or supervisors, or maybe you own a business or work in the corporate world, and you're involved in goal setting, strategic goal setting. Over the short term, strategic goal setting over the long term. We do some of that, of course, here at Hillcrest. We're in a kind of a, a me, I don't know if it's a short term or a long term, it's really a long term goal of creating a culture of disciples, making disciples at Hillcrest. And we're talking about that. And we've got numbers of short term steps to help us get toward that long term objective. And you know, it's very important for churches to understand that there are some spiritual and biblical goals. Um, that are to be put into practice, not only for a season, because sometimes goals come and go thematically, depending on what's happening in the church and what's happening in the larger culture. But then there are some corporate goals that are biblical goals that are tested, tried, and true, and important for every church, in every culture, in every generation. So we're going to talk for a few minutes this morning about what I'm calling simply corporate goals because that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about, not only for the Colossian church, but for really all of those first century churches that dotted the landscape of Asia and Europe, many, though not all, of which he had a hand in starting. See if you can spot some of them as we read our text, Colossians 2 and the first five verses. Everybody ready to read? Would you say amen? Here's what the Bible says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ." Did you all spot four or five corporate goals there that Paul has for that church there in Colossa? If he were here today, I believe he would say they are not only good for 
the church at Colossa, they're really good for the church at Hillcrest as well. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his word, and let all who agree say amen this morning. Now, there's no question Paul is kind of continuing this basic theme of his gospel ministry that we kind of introduced in the last paragraph of chapter 1. If you happen to be here last week, here in chapter 2, he begins the same way that he ends. He ends chapter 1 talking about how he's struggling for the church. Y'all remember that? And here in the first verse of chapter 2, picks up exactly the same word and reminds them yet again that he is struggling for the Colossian believers. There's this physical and emotional, mental, even spiritual labor of love. He's working hard for the church, even agonizing, which is what that word struggle means. It's, a, it's an athletic term that means to contend or to fight in the good sense of the word. And that's what Paul was doing. He was fighting the good fight of faith, something that he would encourage later on his young preacher protégés to do. Fight the good fight of faith, contend for the faith, struggle for the spread of the message of the gospel. And that's what Paul was doing, not only for the Colossians, but here he goes out of his way to mention even the Laodiceans. Y'all remember the church at Laodicea? And there's a bunch of others there right in that same region that, Paul, that John will mention in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Those churches like Philadelphia and Pergamum and Thyatira and Ephesus and Smyrna and so forth. They're all kind of right there together. Laodicea was only about 12, 15 miles uh, from the city of Colossa. Paul didn't start that church either. He didn't start the church at Colossa. He didn't start the church at Laodicea. But here he is in prison making it very clear from a distance a long way away that he loves them, that he cares about them, and that he's struggling just as much for them, laboring just as hard, fighting the good fight just as much for them as any of the churches that he himself had personally established. Would you not agree with me that that's a wonderful statement of the importance of being kingdom-minded in our ministry? Well, sometimes we can get really siloed, and life can just be all about Hillcrest or all about whatever local church that you're in. And we do have to pay attention to first things first in our own circle of influence. But here's the thing. We're all supposed to be on the same team. Amen. And there's something wonderful, I think, within the context of any and every community when churches learn how to work together for greater kingdom good. We ought not be afraid to do that. We ought not be afraid to engage in partnerships in our community. We ought not be afraid to work with one another and to pray for one another in such a way that we see the darkness push back in a more collaborative kind of way and we see the kingdom of God grow. We're really all about that at Hillcrest. I hope you understand how mission-minded we are as a church. I mean, we give lots of money away to churches that aren't even in Pensacola, Florida. We support a church in Denver. We support a church in California. We support a church in Germany. We support... Uh, a couple of churches as we're going to commission a team to go to the Czech Republic. Uh, today, we support churches over there. We have missionaries in other places, in the Netherlands, in England, that do this uh, work of supporting local churches there. We give somewhere in the neighborhood of four, dollars $500,000 out of our budget a year through the cooperative program of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's a half a million dollars at our church. We give away to support missions and churches and church planters here and all over the world. I think that's a really good thing, don't you? 
Paul is struggling for churches that he had nothing to do with in terms of being physically involved in their starting. But regardless of where the church was, there were some things that Paul wanted to see in those churches, regardless of where they were on a geographical map. And likewise, I think we do well to be reminded that what was true for the first century churches is also true for the 21st century churches, just like ours. Now, this morning, there are several goals here. I'm going to kind of lump them together into four headings, four corporate goals that are timeless for every local church in every generation. The first is confident strength. Every church ought to have as a goal, if you want to write another word in your margin, write the word courage down. A courageous, confident strength in terms of facing the culture, which is often hostile, uh, in doing the work of ministry. Paul says that a big slice of the sacrificial nature of his personal ministry was so that the hearts, verse 2, the hearts of the churches may be what? Encouraged. Circle that word. If you're familiar with the Wizard of Oz, you know that the greatest need of the cowardly lion was for what? A courageous heart. That's right. And every church collectively, corporately, every church in every culture needs a courageous heart. Who among us at Hillcrest needs to be encouraged today? Let me answer the question for you. Everybody who's breathing, somebody say amen. We all need encouragement. We all need courage. The word translated encourage there is a form of the Greek word, very familiar word, parakaleo or paraclete. It's the word Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit in its noun form. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. The Holy Spirit is our helper. The Holy Spirit is our encourager. Paul uses the same word that Jesus used with his disciples to describe the coming one who would provide the necessary courage, the necessary help, the necessary assistance in order for those disciples to face the culture. And you know through the reading of the book of Acts, they faced a lot of hostility, right? And all churches that preach the gospel faithfully certainly will. And so that idea of God giving us courage through His divine presence within us, who is the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit is the presence of Jesus indwelling every believer. Last week, we saw the greatest summary of all in the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, the Spirit of Jesus in us is by definition the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit of Jesus that empowers and encourages and indwells the believer. The word parakaleo is a word that literally means to come alongside. And what an encouragement to know that we not only, it's kind of like this divine encouragement, not only from outside in terms of one walking alongside us in ministry, but one who lives within us. So it's encouragement coming from on high, both from outside and from within. The Spirit walks alongside us. The Spirit of Jesus lives in us. And not only to provide us hope for our eternal future in heaven, He is the hope of glory, but He's also our strength for today. Amen. Every church needs it. Do I have to say it? It takes courage to faithfully minister the gospel in a culture that's largely and fundamentally hostile to it. And all cultures are hostile to the gospel, some just more than others. It takes courage 
to preach an exclusive gospel that says there is one way to God. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there is no other way, and there is no other truth, and there is no other life. No one comes unto the Father except through Him. It takes courage to preach that exclusive gospel, doesn't it? And that's especially, especially true in cultures where it's illegal to say something like that. Dominated by a different religious system where it's a violation of the law to make that kind of claim. Man, I'm telling you, it takes courage to minister the gospel. It takes courage to preach a biblical view of marriage. A biological man to a biological woman. Preachers used to not have to define it that way. Now we have to. And for us to stay, listen, if you watch the news, you know there's a guy running for president who wants to take the tax-exempt status of churches away unless they accommodate their message to homosexual and gay marriage. Just take it away. What's a ridiculous claim? And it's pandering, and it's going to go nowhere, but I don't care if it does go away. Because we don't base our message and we don't base our giving on anything related to a tax code in any country. At least I hope you don't. You shouldn't. shouldn't affect us in any way, shape, or form. We'd have to make some accommodations if that were the case. But we're not going to change our message. Because, I mean, it just it takes courage to preach a biblical, to say gay marriage it can't be supported from the Bible record. To say gender fluidity cannot be supported from the biblical record that we have before us. But let me just broaden it from that. It takes courage to say that everybody's messed up by sin of some kind. That we all need a Savior. That we're all lost. It takes courage to confront confront sin of every kind. And that means we confront everybody in some way, shape, or form because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need to be reminded in our courage to preach the truth boldly that we do so in love. Because we care about people, everybody. And we want all people to be saved and know their purpose and know God and have the assurance of everlasting life. Listen, ministry takes struggle. Paul was struggling and he was doing it in large part for people he'd never met in places he'd never been. He's writing from prison So he knows the importance of supernatural strength. It's an essential component of every long-term ministry, and that's why he wants his example of joyful struggle to encourage the hearts of believers. You all agree with me? An essential goal is confident strength in an age of hostility. A second goal that we see here is obvious unity. You all believe God wants us to labor in love and in conviction together, together, together. Do you believe he wants the church? Listen, you read John chapter 17. Jesus' dying prayer was for an obvious unity in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul carries that on. Here in verse 2, he prays that the church would be knit what? Knit together in love. Now that phrase knit together is actually one word in the Greek New Testament. It means to unite. Or to join, kind of like you do when you knit. You take two pieces of of string or yarn and you join them together and they become one. The idea there for the church is that we live together in an obvious unity that's based on mutual love. That nothing supersedes 
our unqualified, unconditional love for one another. Not our favorite college football team, amen. Not our favorite political candidate, not our favorite political party. None of that stuff comes in the way of our unconditional love one for another that's based on Jesus' unconditional love for all of us. Later on in Colossians, and specifically in chapter 3, Paul's going to speak of the critical character change that happens in a person's life when that person is born again. Chief among them is this overwhelming desire to love all people, even people that you don't disagree, uh, that you don't agree with all the time. Look at Colossians 3.14, and above all these things, and we'll see later on what all those things are, but above all these things, put on what? Put on love, which, here it is, binds everything together in perfect harmony. Do you see the integral connection between love and unity there? Not just here in chapter 2, but also in chapter 3 throughout all of the Bible. Man, there's so much in this era of culture wars that can serve to divide the people of God. Man, there are churches, more we can count, divided over social issues. I talked with a pastor friend of mine this week in a strong evangelical church. It's got a faction in his church wearing him out over certain social issues that, that the church ought to accommodate. And where in most evangelical churches, that wouldn't even be an issue. And yet it is an issue in some churches today. Some churches tragically are hopelessly divided, not over, only over social issues, but over theological issues. We can get divided certainly over political issues. Listen, here's the thing. Are you all with me? Say amen. If about next June the 1st, I totally disappear until after November the 3rd, 2016 was terrible. It's going to be worse next year. Y'all better be praying for strength because it's going to be wild. I'm not going to run away, but I will be praying for strength, and I will be praying for unity, and I will be majoring on the gospel and the Word of God the whole year. I can promise you that. There's lots of stuff that can divide us, and sometimes we major on that stuff. What Paul says we ought to be majoring on is the gospel of Christ, kingdom focus. Because one thing I know for sure that there are lots of people in Pensacola, Florida, and around the world that are looking for some kind of an oasis of peace in an otherwise cultural war zone. And this ought to be the place where they can find it. Don't you want your church to be an oasis of peace in the midst of a battleground? That's what I'm going to pray for in 2020, that God's people will love one another regardless of opinions, for us to be unified around the gospel. Let me give you the key. Y'all want to write the key down? Humility. Humility. One of the most Christ-like qualities every believer can aspire to, this Christ-like attitude of self-denial. You know, Jesus had to be humbled to leave heaven to come to die for you. He didn't have to do that. The Bible says he emptied himself. Look at Philippians 2, one of the great passages in the Bible. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others, others more significant than yourselves. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, emptied 
emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. I'm just saying here this morning that there's a lot of division that the devil can use to totally derail any church's God-given mission. Henry Blackaby used to say that a divided church does nothing but cancel the gospel in its community wherever it is. And having said that, there can be no ministry unity unless we learn to do what Jesus says and love one another as Christ has loved us. But let me just say, too, having said that, that there can neither be effective unity in a community where there is not a commitment to theological truth. Adrian Rogers used to say, you never sacrifice truth on an altar of unity, and that's right. Some things are more important than unity, and a commitment to truth is one of them, which alongside this importance of loving one another, Paul gives us a third corporate goal, which is gospel conviction. Gospel conviction. Or, as he says here in verses 2 and 3, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of what? Of wisdom and knowledge. Now, if you've been listening closely over the past several weeks, you know that he's already talked about the importance of wisdom and knowledge. He does that early on in chapter 1. Paul has already prayed for the church to be filled with these twin pillars of wisdom and knowledge which can only be found through a proper understanding of the gospel, which is Christ. Christ is the gospel. And so here in chapter 2, he makes it clear as he revisits wisdom and knowledge that these are things that not only he prays for, they're things that he's struggling for as well. He's fighting for them. And we pray and we struggle for the same things here at Hillcrest. I mean, everything we do in ministry is designed to foster knowledge for the purpose of effective ministry and wisdom. So we are structured fundamentally to foster Christian growth and the maturity of every believer from start to finish. How do we do that? Well, we preach the whole counsel of God. I mean, we try to pick verses and chapters and books apart. So there's a system to our preaching that's designed to teach. That's part of the reason we do not all of our teaching is necessary expository book by book. We do some thematic teaching, but whenever we teach topically, we always base our teaching on a passage from God's Word. It's all based on God's Word. But you take people systematically through preaching of the whole counsel of God, you're going to raise some pretty strong believers, generally speaking. So we preach the whole counsel of God's Word. We're organized into Bible-centered connect groups. And if you're not in a connect group, you need to be because we dialogue about the Word of God in connect groups. And all of our connect groups are designed to foster and encourage growth in relationship, growth in the knowledge of God, growth in the knowledge of the Bible. We do growth groups outside of connect groups. We do men's groups, women's groups, children's groups, kids' groups. I mean, here's the thing about Hillcrest. Even the church mice are organized into groups at Hillcrest because we believe that we're better when we do life together. Isn't that right? 
And what's the point? Well, the same is then. Now is then. That there might be among God's people this full, rich understanding of an absolute commitment to the gospel, the good news of God, which Paul defines here as Christ. And let me just say this morning, the reason that gospel conviction is such an important goal in the church is because it's the most important reality in the whole world. There's not anything more important than the gospel. And because it's the most important reality in the whole world, those who stand against the gospel make it priority number one in terms of their efforts to tear it down. And if they can't tear it down, what they try to do is dilute it, to water it down, to, 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 to force Christian people to compromise the full truth of the gospel. Watch what Paul says here in verse 4. I say this in order to, here comes a purpose statement, in order that no one may what? Delude you with plausible arguments. There's a multiplicity of ways to translate that last phrase. Smooth talk. Convincing philosophy. Attractive ideas. Eugene Peterson renders it this way, that no one may lead you on a wild spiritual goose chase. And the Lord knows there are people then as now who will try to compromise and corrupt the gospel to make it fit their own agenda. False teaching abounded in Colossae. It did in every church of the first century, just as it does today. Here in Colossians, and we'll have more to say about this in the next couple of weeks as Paul gets into more of what the corrupting influences were there in in Colossae. But the scholars call this the Colossian heresy, and we're really not totally sure exactly what it was in terms of all the particulars. Most believe that some form of ancient Gnosticism. Many of you may have heard of the Gnostics, and this would have been an early form of Gnosticism. The word Gnostic is taken from the Greek word gnosis, which is our word for knowledge. And uh, the Gnostics were people that were all about knowing. You know, they were all about coming to a full understanding of life and the universe. And when it came to God, it's a very complicated philosophical religious system. But the bottom line, the Gnostics, when, as, it, as it related to God, the Gnostics taught that God could be understood from a number of different perspectives. That God had what were known as these divine emanations. Christ may have been one of those. But there were many divine emanations. God reveals himself in a multiplicity of ways and a multiplicity of forms. And in order to know God, to come to a full knowledge of God, you just grab hold of any of these divine, it may be Jesus, but it may be this or it may be that. Just pick one, grab a hold of any of them, and you'll eventually find what the Hindus call karma. In fact, this is very similar to modern Hinduism. Most Hinduisms, if you go up to a Hindu and say, you know what, I believe Jesus is God, they'll say, great, wonderful. The problem with the Hindu is when you say what? He's the only one. That's right. No, you can't say that, and that's where they get really upset with you. Well, that's what was happening among the Gnostics. Just grab any of these divine emanations, you know, and any of them will do. And that's why there's so- then along comes Paul in Colossians 1. And now maybe you can better understand why he's doing what he's doing to open this letter because he says things about Jesus like he's the image of the invisible God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things hold together. In him is the whole fullness of God dwelling in bodily form. In Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and what? Knowledge. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. And that drove the Gnostic babblers nuts when he does that. Because the Gnostics had no problem with Jesus the Nazarene. They had a big problem with Jesus is Lord. And it's no different today. People get fired up to talk about Jesus the Nazarene. He's hip. He's cool. Let's talk about Jesus, the landscape changer. But when you start talking about Jesus being the exclusive way to God because he is God, and you have to submit your life to follow him as Lord, for there is no other way, that's where the problem comes in. But Paul is committed to a gospel. Not Christ plus, but what? Christ alone. See, Paul had already told the Galatians, he wrote the letter of Galatians sometime earlier than Colossians. This is what he says in verse 7 of Galatians 1. There are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be what? Accursed. Which is about the only time Paul cusses in the Bible. Because for somebody to be accursed, that's a Hebraic way of saying, may they go to hell straightway. You think this is a big deal to the Apostle Paul? I think so. A really big deal. He's ready to go to the mat on it, and you should too. Which is why perhaps the greatest goal of any New Testament church is this one. This resolute gospel conviction that's focused on Jesus Christ alone. And then finally, and I only have time just to barely mention this one, is the goal of disciplined growth, which I alluded to a minute ago through meeting together and coming together and doing life together. See, it was the presence. This was happening in Colossae. And you know it because the very first words out of Paul's mouth in Colossians 1 were words of rejoicing. <laughs> Rejoice at what I'm being told about you, which I'm learning from Epaphras, who was the one who originally started the church, I believe, and had begun the work of preaching the gospel in Colossae. Now, Epaphras has moved his way back to where Paul was in prison, and he's giving this glowing report about how the church is flourishing, how the church is fruitful, how the church is growing, and the presence of this kind of disciplined faithfulness, which resulted in fruitfulness and growth. That's what convinced Paul that this was a church that had not given up on its conviction that Christ alone is Lord. They were holding true to the gospel. Verse 5, for though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see that your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ, or rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. 
And no doubt, faith is a key that unlocks all of the mysteries of Christ, that unlocks the mysteries of the Word of God, opens the door to the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You can't understand any of that. You can never come to a full understanding of the knowledge and the wisdom that can only come from Christ in you until you realize that Christ is your only hope and you submit to Him in faith begin to follow him. You must be born again, Jesus said, and that always begins with faith. And then once you possess faith, our responsibility is to grow in faith. You get, you know, you start with a mustard seed kind of faith. All it takes a little bit, but there's something wrong if 25 years later, your faith is still just the size of a mustard seed. Everybody tracking with me? No, no, I've said it a hundred times. God wants to grow you into a person of gigantic faith. Mountain-moving, earth-shaking faith. That's why Christian growth is such an important part of life. God wants you to not only possess faith, He wants you to grow in faith. To trust God through all of the difficulties and uncertainties of life. To learn to walk by faith in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's the goal here. And Paul prayed for it, again, in the opening verses of the Colossians. Remember when Paul prayed in Colossians 1, verse 11, that the Colossians would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all what? Endurance and patience. See, God wants them to grow not only in wisdom and knowledge, but in terms of how they walk, he wants that wisdom and knowledge to then be turned into the twin fruits of patience and endurance so that you don't lose your joy, you don't lose heart, and you never give up. Here in verse 5, Paul moves from this athletic image of agonizing and fighting and contending. Now he starts talking about military images. Two concepts here, standing firm in their faith. He uses the phrase good order and firmness, stability. Those are both military terms. And they kind of conjure up images of soldiers marching in position, lined up shoulder to shoulder, massed together for the offensive, which was the old school way of doing battle. Everything's technological today, but back in the day, even during the Civil War for that matter, you massed your men together side by side, shoulder to shoulder, and you just went against the enemy in this massive offensive force. And that's what Paul was hearing about from the Colossians. They were standing firm. They had good order, not just so that they could withstand the onslaught of the evil one, but so they could offensively push back the darkness. Listen, when Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, we sometimes get a hyper-defensive view that we're kind of holding up a wall and the, the forces of the devil and the forces of the culture are coming against us and we're just trying to keep the wall from breaking in. But when the Bible says the gates of hell shall not prevail against you, the image is the church on offense. The church on the move, a church strong in its gospel conviction, firm in its faith, unified because of its love for one another 
side by side, shoulder to shoulder with the gospel of Christ, engaging in love, a culture that's lost. These were the corporate goals for which Paul struggled in his labor of love for this important church. You got them all down? Shout them back at me. First is what? Corporate or confident strength. Number two, obvious unity. Number three, gospel conviction. Number four, disciplined growth. Y'all think those are important goals for us going forward at Hillcrest? You bet. I do too. Just remember this. They don't just happen. They don't just happen. As it was at Colossae, so it is at Hillcrest. Maturity always means commitment. And then as now, maturity always requires struggle. So let's be like Paul and our Christian ancestors before us and keep on fighting the good fight of faith till Jesus Christ comes again. Are you with me? Say amen this morning. Amen.